Strong, and this is VOA One, the hits. Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Ashley Thompson, and I'm Dan Novak. This program is designed for English learners, so we speak a little slower, and we use words and phrases, especially written for people learning English. On today's program, John Russell and I have a report on the U.S. Supreme Court case that will affect millions of Americans with student loan debt. Dan Novak presents this week's education report. We close with the next part of our U.S. history series. But first, the United States Supreme Court. Began hearing arguments on Tuesday about President Joe Biden's student debt relief plan. The court's decision will affect millions of borrowers who could see their loans reduced or forgiven. The Biden administration announced the debt forgiveness plan in August of last year. It would cancel ten thousand dollars in federal student loan debt. For individuals making less than one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars per year, or for households making less than two hundred fifty thousand dollars per year, people who received a Pell Grant, a kind of special financing given to those who show higher financial need, would get an additional ten thousand dollars of debt forgiven. College students can be a part of the plan. If their loans were sent out or distributed before July first of last year, the plan would permit forty-three million borrowers to get some debt forgiveness. About twenty million people could see their debt disappear completely, the Biden administration says. The White House says twenty-six million people have applied for debt relief. Around 16 million people had already had their debt relief approved before courts suspended the program. The Congressional Budget Office has said the program will cost around 400 billion dollars over the next 30 years. The Supreme Court is hearing two arguments against the plan. One involves six states. All led by members of the Republican Party. The other involves a legal action brought by two students. A lower court dismissed the lawsuit involving the states, which are Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina. The court said the states could not legally protest the program because they were not harmed by it. The states appealed the decision, and the U.S. Court of Appeals ruled to suspend operation of the program. Then the Supreme Court agreed to consider the case. The student's case involves Myra Brown, who is not able to receive debt relief because her loans are privately held. It also involves Alexander Taylor, who is only able to get ten thousand dollars. And not the full twenty thousand dollars 
because he did not receive a Pell Grant. The students say that the Biden administration did not go through the correct process in putting the plan into action. Texas-based U.S. District Judge Mark Pittman, an appointee of President Donald Trump, agreed with the students and ruled to block the program. Pittman ruled that the Biden administration did not have clear permission from Congress to begin the program. A federal appeals court left Pittman's ruling in place, and the Supreme Court agreed to take up the case along with the state's challenge. To cancel student loan debt, the Biden administration is using the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act, commonly known as the HEROES Act. Put in place after the September 11, 2001 terror attacks, the law was designed to protect service members from financial loss while they fought in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. The law permits the Secretary of Education to waive or change the terms of federal student loans as necessary in connection with a national emergency. Trump, a Republican, declared the COVID-19 pandemic a national emergency in March 2020. But Biden recently announced that the national emergency will end on May 11th. The Biden administration has said that the end to the national emergency does not change the legal argument for student loan debt cancellation because the pandemic affected millions of student borrowers who might have fallen behind on their loans during the emergency. The Supreme Court will likely pay careful attention to several big issues. The first one is whether the states and the two student borrowers have the right to sue over the plan in the first place, a legal idea called standing. If the court finds that there is no standing, then the Biden administration will be clear to go ahead with the plan. To prove they have standing, the states and borrowers will have to show in part that they are financially harmed by the plan. Beyond the question of standing, the justices will also be asking whether the HEROES Act gives the Biden administration the power to put the plan into action and how it went about doing so. I'm John Russell. And I'm Ashley Thompson. Earthquakes that destroyed large parts of southern Turkey and northwest Syria in February have affected countless children in both countries. For children in Syria, it was especially severe. The country has been in crisis since civil war broke out more than 11 years ago. 
aid groups like Save the Children and UNICEF are working to get food, water, and shelter to children and families there. Additionally, UNICEF is trying to get Syrian children back into school and learning again. The quakes damaged at least 1,000 schools in the country. Many of the structures are unsafe to enter. But not all. More than 175 schools that survived the events have been turned into temporary shelters for families. UNICEF has sent play and education supplies to shelters in Aleppo, Hama, and Latakia to reach about 50,000 children, said Ava Hines, the group's communication chief in Syria. At the temporary shelters, children can play with each other and continue their schooling. Others receive emotional support. Hines said that education and schooling is about more than just learning. Education is a lifeline, Hines told VOA. It's a way to bring stability. It's a way to bring structure every day to these children who have gone through something really traumatic. Hines said that fun activities like playing, dancing, or listening to music can be therapeutic for children, even for just a short time. It can also bring some peace to parents. Hines said she recently visited one shelter, and it was very delightful to see children laughing, kids who have gone through something really horrendous. The education system in Syria was considered broken even before the earthquakes. UNICEF says there are about 3.7 million children in Syria, and an estimated 2.4 million of them do not attend school. There have been at least 700 attacks on schools and education centers during the war since the United Nations started recording such incidents. Following disasters like earthquakes, children cannot wait for schools to be rebuilt to continue their education, said Laura Frigenti. She is head of the Global Partnership for Education, or GPE, which provides financing and other support for education in developing countries, including Syria. Frigenti said that rebuilding schools after such a disaster can take too long and be too expensive. Instead, she said, learning should continue for Syrian children as soon as possible. After immediate needs like food and shelter are met, education is something that really helps children to be rooted again in a community, in a society, Frigenti said. Beyond education, schools can provide food and emotional support. Sabah is a nine-year-old girl who received treatment for malnutrition at one of the UNICEF shelters. She was caught in her home with her family when the earthquake hit. She told UNICEF that she and her family had to escape in the middle of the night. They brought nothing with them. It was very scary, rainy, and cold, Sabah said later from the shelter. I don't feel like eating. 
I don't have an appetite, and I don't feel like eating food. Ramadan Sulima is the principal of a daycare center in Jindiris, in northwest Syria. He said the daycare opened last year to help children suffering from the war. For over a year, our situation was good. We and the students were happy. He said. And when the earthquake started, I just wanted to get in touch with my students," he said as he walked outside the destroyed center. "When I hear a student died, I start crying, like I lost a son, though I didn't." Sulima added that we aren't going to stop; we will persist. We will persist in building this generation, in building their future. I'm Dan Novak. Was Dan Novak with this week's education report? Dan joins me now to talk more about the story. Welcome, Dan. Great to be back, Ashley. I wanted to ask you about one word we heard in the report: lifeline. Can you explain what that word means? Sure. The word was used by Ava Hines of UNICEF to describe education for the Syrian children displaced from the recent earthquakes. A lifeline is something that is really important to survival or success. A lifeline is also just simply a line used for saving life. For example, a lifeline on a boat for people who fall in the water. So, how is education a lifeline in Syria? From the people I spoke to, education is a lifeline in several different ways. Learning itself is important, just as a way to keep kids' minds busy in the middle of so much disaster. Schools have also been used to provide shelter for people who have lost their homes. They can also provide children and families with food and nutrition. UNICEF volunteers in schools have also been providing kids with emotional support. So schools are doing a lot to help in the aftermath of these horribly destructive earthquakes. But a lot of schools have been damaged. Yeah, it's adding to an already terrible situation. UNICEF told me there's at least a thousand schools damaged in Syria. It's hurting an already broken education system in the country. By the aid group's estimate, more than half of children in Syria do not attend school. So, school and education is a lifeline in that it is so important to get as many kids back in school as quickly as possible, because when kids leave the education system, as we saw with the pandemic, it can be very hard to get them back. Well, thanks for that very important report, Dan, and thanks for answering my questions today. You're welcome. VOA Learning English has launched a new program for children. It is called Let's Learn English with Anna. The new course aims to teach children American English through asking and answering questions and experiencing fun situations. For more information, visit our website, learningenglish.voanews.com. 
Welcome to the Making of a Nation, American History in VOA Special English. Theodore Roosevelt became President of the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. It was a time of great technological progress in the United States. Yet many people felt that there was too little social progress. They demanded reforms in politics, industry, and the use of natural resources. Theodore Roosevelt supported this call for reforms. His first target was big business. Kay Gallant and Harry Monroe continue the story of the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt. In the early 1900s, a group of wealthy American businessmen agreed to join their railroads. They formed a company or trust to control the joint railroad. The new company would have complete control of rail transportation in the American West. There would be no competition. President Roosevelt believed the new company violated the Sherman Antitrust Law. The law said it was illegal for businesses to interfere with trade among the states. Roosevelt said he would make no compromises in enforcing the law. He asked the Supreme Court to break up the Railroad Trust. We are not... Roosevelt said, attacking these big companies, we are only trying to do away with any evil in them. We are not hostile to them, but we believe they must be controlled to serve the public good. The Supreme Court ruled against the Railroad Trust. In the next few years, other trusts would be broken up in the same way. The American people called this trust-busting, and they called Theodore Roosevelt the trust-buster. Roosevelt made several speeches explaining his position on big business. Everywhere he went, he found wide public support. Later, he told a friend why people liked him so well. He said, I put into words what is in their hearts and minds, but not in their mouths. President Roosevelt won even more public support for his actions during a labor crisis in the coal industry. The incident was one of many in American history in which a president had to decide if he should interfere in private industry. Coal miners went on strike in the spring of 1902. They demanded more pay and safer working conditions. Mine owners refused to negotiate. One even insulted the miners. He said the rights and interests of the laboring man will be protected and cared for. It will not be the labor activists who take care of him. 
it will be the Christian men to whom God, in his great wisdom, has given the control of the property interests of this country. This self-serving use of religion made many Americans support the striking workers. After several months, President Roosevelt invited coal mine owners and union leaders to a meeting in Washington. He asked them to keep in mind that a third group was involved in their dispute, the public. He warned that the nation faced the possibility of a winter without heating fuel. Roosevelt said, I did not call this meeting to discuss your claims and positions. I called it to appeal to your love of country. The union leaders said they were willing to have the president appoint an independent committee to settle the strike. They said they would accept the committee's decision as final. The mine owners rejected the idea. One warned the president not even to talk about it. Such talk, he said, was illegal interference in private industry. That made Theodore Roosevelt angry. Later, he said, if it were not for the high office I held, I would have taken him by the seat of the pants and the nape of the neck and thrown him out the window. Finally, Roosevelt got both sides to agree to a compromise. Mine owners agreed to have an independent committee study the miners' demands, and the miners agreed to return to work until the study was completed. Several months later, the report was ready. The committee proposed that miners accept a smaller pay increase in exchange for improved working conditions. Both sides accepted the proposal. The coal strike ended. Not everyone was happy. Many people still felt Roosevelt had no right to interfere. Roosevelt disagreed. My business, he said, is to see fair play among all men, capitalists or wage workers. All I want to do is see that every man has a fair deal, no more, no less. Roosevelt believed the United States needed a strong leader. He planned to strengthen the presidency whenever he could. Roosevelt was an active, noisy man. As one writer described him, Theodore is always the center of action. When he goes to a wedding, he wants to be the bride. When he goes to a funeral, he wants to be the dead man. Many of Roosevelt's friends thought he was an overgrown boy. You must always remember, one said, that the president is about six years old. 
Another friend sent this message to Roosevelt on his 46th birthday. You have made a very good start in life. We have great hopes for you when you grow up. Theodore Roosevelt loved outdoor activities. He especially loved the natural beauty of the land. He worried about its future. Roosevelt wrote, I recognize the right and duty of this generation to develop and use the natural riches of our land. But I do not recognize the right to waste them, nor to rob, by wasteful use, the generations that come after us. Roosevelt set aside large areas of forest land for national use. He created 50 special areas to protect wildlife, and he established a number of national parks. Theodore Roosevelt faced the responsibilities of foreign policy with the same strength he used in facing national problems. He firmly believed in expanding American power in the world. We have no choice, he said, as to whether or not we will play a great part in the world. All that we can decide is whether we will play our part well or poorly. To play well, Roosevelt said, the United States needed a strong navy. It also needed a canal across Central America so the navy could sail quickly between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. For many years, people had dreamed of such a waterway. With a canal across Central America, ships could sail directly from ocean to ocean. They would not have to make the long, costly voyage around the southern end of South America. The most likely place to build such a canal was at the thinnest point of land, Panama. Another possible place was just to the north, Nicaragua. Over the years, several attempts were made to build the canal. In the 1880s, Ferdinand de Lesseps, builder of the Suez Canal, formed a French company to build a waterway across Panama. De Lesseps spent $300 million to build just one-third of the canal. He could get no more money. His company failed. In the 1890s, an American company tried to build a canal across Nicaragua. It made little progress. After three years, it gave up the attempt. When Theodore Roosevelt became president in the early 1900s, he was ready to try again. A study was made to decide which would be a better place for the canal, Panama or Nicaragua. Engineers said it would cost less to complete the canal de Lesseps had started 
twenty years earlier in Panama. But de Lesseps' company still owned the land on which the canal would be built. The United States would have to buy the land as well as the rights to build the waterway. The study decided it would be less costly overall to build the canal in Nicaragua. The proposal went to the United States Congress for approval. And that's our program for today. Join us again tomorrow to keep learning English through stories from around the world. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak.